1: Recorded live. Hey everybody, it's Chris here with another episode of Theism. I'm going to be continuing Drake's uh, Thomas Jefferson was wrong, a complete refutation of the Enlightenment. So the section I'm going to be starting here is on ethics. It's a good subject. So, starts off, it says, orientation. Secular people are completely baffled to know what standard they are to use to determine good from evil or moral and immoral actions, except when they deal with white people who believe the Bible. Everything is up for grabs for them and completely arbitrary unless they are talking to white people who want to preserve their own identities. The standard in this case is whatever these people believe is evil, and so we can compromise everything we do and contradict every right of man we believe in when dealing with them. Every political theory must have an ethical foundation. Dr. Clark defines ethics as quote, the study of right and wrong, of the most desirable manner of life, and of the most worthy motivation. End quote. There are three primary theories of ethics teleological ethics, ateli- teleological ethics, and revealed ethics, i.e., religion. Teleological ethics. Theological ethics asserts that the morality of an act is dependent on its purpose. An act is virtuous if it is a means to that end. Clark objects, At the outset, someone might object that this type of theory is not worthwhile discussing because it is false. The moral value of an act cannot be judged by its consequences for the reason that the agent cannot control them. A man may have the best intentions and he may do what is right, and yet through some accidental, unforeseen circumstance, the consequences are unhappy. For example, he might make a generous donation to a charitable organization that has been highly recommended to him. But because of some recent change in the board of directors or for some other reason of which the donor is unaware, the money is used foolishly or even wickedly. Does this unforeseen consequence make the donation evil? Should not its moral value depend on the intention of the donor and not on the consequences of the act? Or, conversely, a wicked man may intend to do harm, but for similar reasons the results turn out to be good. Do not motives the objector asks bear on moral values as much as or even more than consequences do? There is a second preliminary objection to teleological ethics. Far from being a theory of morality, one might declare it a theory of immorality. Or, it will be said, if we decide on the basis of consequences, and if virtue is only a means, then this theory is reduced to the execrable position that the end justifies the means. And is there anything more vile than this principle, a principle that has justified the worst crimes in history? The Roman Catholics wanted to rid France of the Protestants, and the massacre accomplished this end. end One form of teleological ethics is the ethical theory called psychological hedonism. This theory asserts that the good is pleasure. On this view, all people always desire pleasure and nothing else but pleasure. This theory is an illusion. On this view, all people always... Or will the psychological hedonists refuse bitter medicine or a a discomforting trip to the dentist to cure their ailment? Will they not suffer the pains of employment? All these do not give pleasure at the moment. If not an immediate pleasure, maybe... Then all people always desire or act towards a future pleasure. Clark objects, quote, There are many evidences that this is not true. A drunkard may know that guzzling his liquor will make him sick and give him a headache, but he guzzles. He desires the immediate pleasure and sacrifices the pleasure of tomorrow, end quote. The difficulties continue for secular theories because it can never be determined how a good desire is distinguished from a bad desire. And finally, the definition of pleasure as sensation falls prey to the hundreds of criticisms Clark has made to the entire endeavor of empiricism. Another form of teleological ethics is the ethical theory called utilitarianism. This is the ethical theory that affirms that the proper moral action is one that produces the overall happiness for the greatest number. This has been the ethic of many tyrannical nations. The execution and torture of the inferior race gives pleasure to the superior race, therefore it is the right thing to do. This theory also caters to totalitarian systems. In utilitarianism, the individual must sacrifice his own interests for the interests of the whole or the state. Clark summarizes the problem with teleological theories, quote, It would be necessary to know not merely the immediate results of a given choice, but the more remote, and the still more remote, into an indefinite future. It would be necessary to know the effects of the proposed action on every individual who might possibly be involved. And all these effects, in their various degrees, would have to be balanced against the same calculations made for each of the other proposed policies. Only after all these calculations had been completed could it be said that such and such ought to be done. But obviously these calculations cannot be completed. Therefore, a teleological system cannot conclude that one action rather than another is a moral obligation. A teleological ethics. This theory of ethics denies that moral excellence is found in its purpose or that a certain act is a means to a good end. This theory affirms that morality is found in the act itself, irrespective of its consequences. The primary proponent of this view was Immanuel Kant. Kant's construction is based on logical consistency. Immoral action is logically fallacious and self-deceiving. This is a replacement of teleology's theory that morality is based on in consequence. Clark says, quote, Truth-telling is right, so Kant argued. Because everyone can tell the truth without any logical impossibility arising in the total situation. While lying is wrong because it is logically impossible for everyone to tell lies. But what about suicide? Of course, Kant believed that suicide is wrong. But is it not logically possible for me to commit suicide and at the same time to will that everyone else should commit suicide? If I will to break a promise, I desire to make myself an exception. I want other people to keep their promises to me. I want faithfulness to be universal, with myself an exception. Because of such an exception, argues Kant, the act contemplated is immoral. But no such exception is logically necessary in the case of suicide. I may believe, without contradicting myself, that life is evil, that suicide is the solution and that everyone ought to commit suicide, end quote. This system of ethics is strenuously against the idea of incentive because man should perform moral actions because they are good actions, not to gain a reward. This is where biblical revealed ethics improves. To consider a couple more popular items, Many people consider the rule of right and wrong to be a mechanistic and secularized view of the Golden Rule. This is unsatisfying. Does this interpretation of the Golden Rule imply that a warden in charge of executing a convicted serial killer should release the serial killer because if the warden were in the place of the serial killer and the serial killer in the place of the warden, the warden would desire freedom? This view of the Golden Rule would only serve, as it has, to justify the enfranchisement of pure evil. Another item that I have come across is to appeal to innate knowledge. Aside from the arbitrary, arbitrarity of this position, it is also baseless when coming from the mouth of an empiricist. Locke presented the classic empiricist rejection of innate knowledge in his an essay concerning human understanding. If knowledge comes only by experience, innate knowledge, which affirms knowledge before experience, is ipso facto precluded. Noam Chomsky and B.F. Skinner advanced the debate in the past few decades. Chomsky, well-known as the most influential philosopher of our time, resoundingly rejected the classic empiricist position, presenting a basis for innate knowledge through genetics. Another item that I have heard from anarchist philosophers is compulsion. Evil is identified in the act of compulsion. This position can only be adhered to by people completely unwilling to indulge in the most ridiculous hypocrisies. To be a parent, one must compel. <clears throat> a child's life is dominated by the compulsions of his parents, even the most liberal of them. <clears throat> from forced citizenship, Education, culture, environment, language, and medicine, a child's life is necessarily compelled to conform to the ideas and will of his parents. I distinctly remember being held down by my atheist, quote, liberal father and and the nurses at my pediatrician's office as I screamed at the top of my lungs, in horror as I was being repeatedly stabbed with my prepubescent vaccinations. Revealed ethics. Revealed ethics avoid all the problems of secular theories. The omniscient creator of the universe knows all the consequences of an action. His commands are universal. Natural law, universal ethical norms cannot be deduced or induced from sensation. Einstein's relativity theories tell us everything is in a constant state of flux and change. Secondly, induction is a formal fallacy. Also, the authority of their obligation is unquestioned. Thus saith the Lord is how we know these commands are right and good. Moreover, the biblical view gives man promises of reward for obedience and a purpose to live and to continue human society. While secular theories can give us no reason to believe life is even worth living and reduced to nihilism not every command in the scripture is easy to understand however that does not eliminate the possibility of knowing right from wrong in some cases the other theories cannot even get off the ground also the authority of their obligation is unquestioned thus saith the lord is how we know these commands are right and good Moreover, the messianic view gives man a purpose to live and to continue human society, while secular theories can give us no reason to believe life is worth living. Not every command in the scripture is easy to understand. However, that does not eliminate the possibility of knowing right from wrong in some cases. The other theories cannot even get off the ground. The biblical theory of ethics is found in the Torah, I will not go into detail on this right now, as I am preparing an entire book against Ebionism, which will deal with these issues in full. I have exposed the mistakes of the Christians regarding the Torah in my book Why I Left the Christian Church. I will be writing a book in the next few years concerning exactly what changed between the Old and New Covenants, and my writings against the Ebionites. The Summary of the Protestant Christian Theory of Ethics is found in the Westminster Larger Catechism, questions 98 to 148. Anthony Burgess's <clears throat> Vindiciae Legis, or a Vindication of the Moral Law and the Covenants from the Heirs of pa- Papists, Arminians, Socinians, and more especially Antinomians, 1647. <clears throat> is a series of 30 lectures preached in London during the Westminster Assembly concerning the Torah. I will be addressing both of these documents in my dealings with Ebionism, along with Sherman Isbell's The Divine Law of Political Israel Expired, General Equity, which is an authoritative explanation of the Torah in the Church that I departed from a few years ago, and of course Rush Duny's Institutes of Biblical Law. As a summary statement in this progression, I will simply say that Yeshua was not contradicting the Torah. He was simply clearing away the false Pharisaic interpretations of the Torah. When Messiah says, quote, Swear not at all, Matthew five four, this is against profane swearing and using Yah's name unnecessarily. It does not abrogate the command to swear oaths before God in the Old Testament. This is buttressed by the example of the early Christian fathers. A Dictionary of Christian Antiquities, Volume 2, by William Smith and Samuel Cheatham, page 1416, says, quote, Coming to the direct evidence that oaths were employed and sanctioned in the early church, Tertullian repudiates the charge that Christians could swear by the genius of Caesar, for the genii are nothing else than demons. But he adds, they do swear by the emperor's safety. And he defends the oath on the ground that in king's men reverence the appointment of God. And he holds that to be a great oath which involves the safety of what God hath willed. The same oath is mentioned by Athanasius. Compare the oath of Joseph... Genesis XLII 15, quote, by the life of Pharaoh, end quote, this form of oath, which was probably adopted as an indirect answer to the charge of disloyalty, so freely cast at the early Christians, was evidently subject to abuse. So the Fourth Council of Carthage, AD 398, orders a clergyman swearing by any creature to be severely reprimanded, and if if obdurate, to be excommunicated. Athanasius required of Constantius that his accusers should be put upon oath. In Vegetius, who lived at the close of the 4th century, there is a form of the oath required of Christian soldiers. They swear by God, by Christ, by the Holy Spirit, and by the majesty of the emperor. Other illustrations of the use of oaths cited by Bingham will be found in August, Ad, Fublical, Id, serm. okay, a bunch of other texts. The laws of the Christian emperors contain frequent mention of oaths. Constantine confirms a promise of reward to those who will inform against the corrupt practices of his ministers by the adjuration, quote, so may the Almighty be ever merciful to me and keep me safe, end quote. One of the statutes of Arcadius shows that contracts were usually confirmed by an oath, either by the name of God or the emperor's safety. In the conference between the Catholics and Donatus in the time of Honorius, the emperor's delegates swore to judge impartially by the marvelous mystery of the Trinity, by the sacrament of the Incarnation, and by the emperor's safety. End quote. And indeed, whatever may have been the scruples of individual fathers, there can be no doubt that oaths were invariably required both in civil and criminal causes under the Christian emperors. Constantine laid down a general law that all witnesses before a court were to bind themselves by an oath before giving evidence. The Justinian Code not only confirmed this law, but added a clause to it that both plaintiff and defendant must swear upon the Gospels, the one that he brought his action not for the purpose of calumny, but on legitimate grounds, the other, that he had a just offense. By a further enactment, the parties to a cause swore that no bribe had been or would be given to the judge or any other person, nor was the obligation of an oath confined to lay causes, to check simony in cases of ecclesiastical preferment, the electors were required to take an oath that they did not select their nominee for any improper motive. Also, at the time of ordination, the candidate swore upon the Gospels that he had given no money to the bishop ordaining him. Among the privileges of the bishops was an exemption from appearing in person to give evidence in the public courts. It is not quite clear whether the privilege as originally conferred by Theodosius extended so far as this. It was, however, distinctly granted by Justinian, and the same law enacted, that whenever bishops were examined in private, their testimony should be taken not upon oath, but upon their word in presence of the Holy Gospels, as becomes priests. With the exception of some of the Spanish synods, scarcely any mention is found of oaths in decrees of councils. In the decree which concludes the Acts of the Fourth Council of Toledo, A.D. 633, the oath of allegiance to kings is ins- insisted upon in the Eighth Council of Toledo, A.D. 653, as a long dissertation on the sanctity of oaths, and insists upon the necessity of an oath in making treaties, in the reconciliation of friends, and in giving evidence, and adds that if no evidence is forthcoming against an accused, then his oath is sufficient to establish his innocence, end quote. Capital punishment, war, and civil justice are not contradictory to the long-suffering of Messiah in the New Covenant, as as contrasted to the law of the old. In Matthew 5, Yeshua is not criticizing the Torah when he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. This was the lex talionis of the civil law, which was being used to justify sinful bitterness towards an enemy in an individual context, which contradicts Leviticus 19.17, which clearly taught love and long suffering to your intra-tribal enemy, or one of your fellow kinsmen. Yeshua also says, in Matthew 5.43, quote, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The law does indeed say to love one's neighbor, and in a sense there are passages such as Psalm 139 that mention hating the enemies of God. However, Messiah was rebuking a bitter, selfish, and sinful hatred of a tribesman, a fellow tribesman, prohibited by such passages as Exodus 23, 4-5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away you shall surely return it to him if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load you shall refrain from leaving it to him you shall surely release it with him proverbs 24:17. do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles in proverbs 25:21. if your enemy is hungry give him food to eat and if he is thirsty give him water to drink when the law is said to be abrogated to the believer in the new covenant, it is abrogated one as a means to attain justifying and eternal life, Romans ten four, two, as a condemning curse, Romans eight, Galatians three thirteen, and three in sin offerings uh, Ephesians two fifteen and Hebrews nine ten. Four as an increase to iniquity, Romans seven eight. Without the Spirit, the law arouses boiling frustrations in us. We know what is right, but find no ability to do it. This aggravates us all the more and frustrates our mind as we ponder why God would leave us to such a condition. When a man is regenerated by the Spirit, there is a new desire and ability to practice the law. However, the Torah is still our rule of life. It is the way we are to live. I will explain this in great detail in my coming book, Against Ebionism. So he has some passages down here in a footnote, Acts 6.11-13. through 13. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. Acts 18.21 But took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. Acts 24.14 But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, So I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Acts 25.8 While he answered for himself, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. Romans 2.12 For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Romans 2.17. Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. Romans 3.20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans 3.31. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not, on the contrary, we establish the law romans four seven blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered romans six fifteen What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace, Certainly not. Romans 6.19, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Romans 7.7, 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known coveted coveted covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. Romans 7:12 Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Romans 7:14 For we know that the law is spiritual, not merely national and political, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Romans 7:22 For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. Romans seven twenty five. I thank God through Yeshua the Messiah our Master. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Romans eight four, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Romans eight six through seven, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of Yahweh, nor in, indeed can be. Romans twelve nineteen, 19, Beloved, do not look for revenge, but leave room for the wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Romans thirteen eight through 9 Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying: You shall love your neighbor as yourself. First Corinthians five one. It is actually reported that there is immor- immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles—that someone has his father's wife, which is prohibited in Leviticus eighteen seven through eight. 1 Corinthians 5.7-8 Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Messiah, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 1 Corinthians 5.13 But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. 1 Corinthians 7.39 The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. So he goes on, he says, Yeshua appealed to rewards and punishments as incentives to human behavior often. Yeshua says in Matthew 5.3 Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, and people insult you and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you first corinthians nine eight through nine I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? And then verse 10, Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. 1 Corinthians 9.20-21 To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. 1 Corinthians 14.34 the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. Second Corinthians six fourteen. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? Ephesians six one through three. Children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Galatians 3.21 Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. Galatians 5.14 For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 6.2 Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. He says this right after quoting Leviticus 19:18 and Galatians 5:14. Colossians 2:16 through 17. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come but the body of the Messiah. Here we see Paul encouraging the Colossians not to be intimidated by the judgments of their Gentile pagan tribesmen for becoming like Jews and showing them that the feasts are not shadows of things in the past, but of the future, and that is why they should still keep them. 1 Timothy 1.8 But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. 2 Timothy 3.16-17 through All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, Moses was no different. In Hebrews 11:24 through 26 By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the pre- people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Messianic revealed ethics are clearly egoistic, at least to some degree. Desire for reward is legitimate motivation. Some object that the Pharisees were selfish, incentive-driven men who wanted the praise of men. Clark replies, If Jesus objected to the Pharisees, it was not because they wanted a reward, but because of the measly reward they wanted, end quote. Yah ordained Israel as an example to the heathen nations around them because God held the Gentiles accountable to some... The same moral natural law as the Jews, even in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 8. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? For what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Exodus 12.12 For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 18.12 for whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord and because of these detestable things the Lord your God will drive them out before you. Jeremiah 48:42 Moab will be destroyed from being a people because he has become arrogant toward the Lord. Jeremiah 46:25 The Lord of hosts the God of Israel says Behold, I am going to punish Ammon of thieves and Pharaoh in Egypt, along with her gods and her kings, even Pharaoh and those who trust in him. Jeremiah 48:35 through 36. I will make an end of Moab, declares the Lord, the one who offers sacrifice on the high place and the one who burns incense to his gods. Therefore my heart wails for Moab like flutes. My heart also wails like flutes for the men of Kir Haris. Therefore they have lost the abundance it produced. Jeremiah 50:17 through 18 Israel is a scattered flock. The lions have driven them away. The first one who devoured him was the king of Assyria, and this last one, who has broken his bones, is Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am going to punish the king of Babylon and his land, just as I punish the king of Assyria jeremiah fifty one forty seven therefore, behold, days are coming when I will punish the idols of Babylon, and her whole land will be put to shame, and all her slain will fall in her midst isaiah ten ten as my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols isaiah nineteen one The Oracle Concerning Egypt Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. The Torah's theory of ethics is in direct contrast to the ascetic view of ethics that is found in the Anchoretic churches and presents the fundamental vindication of the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation was a radical departure from what the world had previously understood Christianity to be. For 1,400 years plus, anchorism had dominated the theological system of the church and had culminated in a tyrannical institution that plunged the Western world into poverty, ignorance, and superstition. Ancient Christianity and the Doctrine of the Oxford Tracts by Isaac Taylor documented this in detail. Natural Law First, I would like to explain the pagan idea of natural law explained by Plato, and then give an exposition of the Reformed Christian view of natural law. Plato's philosophy is mostly known by the objects of knowledge, the ideas. Plato argues that these objects must be non-corporeal. The clearest arguments he gives is the cube argument. Let's say you have two dice and one wooden block. If the idea, cube, was one physical object, say one of the dice the other dice in the block could not be cube because they are not that one dice. If cube was the sum total of all cubes, no individual cube could be cube because each individual is not the sum total or aggregate of them all. If all dice, blocks, and other cube-shaped objects were destroyed, the idea cube would still remain. Therefore, cube is not corporeal. Cube must be a single, eternal, unchangeable object of thought above the realm of the senses in the world of ideas. These ideas are then the real essences and the objects of knowledge. Of course, I reject Plato here because thoughts are activities of a mind, not things in themselves. There is an important point to understand why the ideas are superior to sense objects. Sense objects, even on their own admission, constantly change due to the Heraclitian flux, and objects of knowledge must be stable. If you want the words you use to mean the same thing before and after you speak a sentence, sense objects simply will not do. These eternal and unchangeable ideas of Plato prove themselves indispensable. Plato's Cave Allegory To describe the relationship of the lower visible world we live in to sensation and the ideas, Plato constructed his famous cave allegory. Plato describes humankind like a number of people in a cave facing the back of a cave with their necks chained so they cannot turn around. Behind them is a roadway, and behind the roadway is a fire. When a person walks down the roadway and passes by the cave, the person's figure casts a shadow on the back wall. This shadow is all the shackled people see of the person. In the same way, when we observe the visible world we live in, we observe a half-reality, a shadow of that which is real. The true reality is the world of ideas, or in the allegory, the person's walking by. When we have a sensation of that shadowy reality, we are reminded of what we know already, but in an incomplete sense. The world of ideas is itself the supreme being, in Uzia in a living mind. The ideas that compose this world are an ordered system with the idea of the good as the supreme principle, Hooper Uzia. is through the good that all the subordinate concepts are to be understood and only in relation to the good. Therefore, we understand justice and become just for the purpose of the good, not for justice in itself. In this sense, the Platonic system is teleological in contrast with Democritus' system, which was mechanical, onto the chain of being. As was stated earlier, the world of ideas is the supreme being in Uzia. Below this world, there is the Demiurge. The Demiurge is God, an independent and eternal being, the maker of heaven and earth. Below the demiurge is chaotic space and matter, also independent, but space is non-being. Good and evil is discerned by how much being something has. The more being and simpler in composition, the better. The less being and less simple, or more distinct, the worse. The same goes for false and true propositions. Plato would say that, quote, The true opinion is the real opinion, and the false opinion is its contrary. The real opinion grasps the object, but the false opinion apparently grasps nothing. In other words, it is no opinion at all, or conversely, all opinions are true. End quote. Plato classed all things as either quote, being or becoming. That which is being is the subject of rational statements, discussions, and truths. That which is becoming is the realm of opinion and science. Plato would be an operationalist in his philosophy of science. That which is becoming is always changing and can never be an object of knowledge. Therefore, if certain scientific procedures seem to invent things and help people, fine and good, but these procedures are never true. As a matter of fact, the procedure is actually false the moment after the concept is grasped. A biblical philosophy can never allow anything above Yah. In Platonism, abstract moral ideas are superior to the God who created heaven and earth. On the biblical view, the ultimate basis of good and evil is the nature of Yah. Francis Turidan says, quote, God's will is regulated, not indeed extrinsically, but intrinsically, by his most holy nature. End quote. Natural law, universal ethical norms, cannot be deduced or induced from sensation. They are revealed either innately or by special revelation. Sensation would tell us there are no norms, for Heraclitus and Einstein maintain that all physical objects are in a constant state of flux. So a fixed norm would ipso facto be impossible. Secondly, induction is a formal fallacy. On the biblical view, the law of nature was originally imprinted upon the conscious, conscience of Adam in his unfallen state, and was subsequently summarized in the Decalogue, Exodus 23-17. I still have many questions in this regard, but my present study leads me to believe that Yah placed a genetic program into our DNA to make all this possible. I agree with that. I think that, uh... These uh, universals exist as abstract propositions in the mind of God, which he uh, pre-programmed into us, um, uh, you know, a universal language program into our DNA. I think they also perceive the DNA, you know, they exist in our soul and in our spirits as well. But they manifest in the DNA. Um, Calvin's Institutes, 281, quote, I believe it will not be out of place here to introduce the Ten Commandments of the Law and give a brief exposition of them. Moreover, the very things contained in the two tables are, in a manner dictated to us by that internal law, which, as has already been said, is in a manner written and stamped on every heart. For conscience, instead of allowing us to stifle our perceptions and sleep on without interruption acts as an inward witness and monitor, reminds us of what we owe to God, points out the distinction between good and evil, and thereby convicts us of departure from duty. But man, being immured in the darkness of error, is scarcely able, by means of that natural law, to form any tolerable idea of the worship which is acceptable to God. At all events, he is very far from forming any correct knowledge of it. In addition to this, he is so swollen with arrogance and ambition and so blinded with self-love that he is unable to survey and, as it were, descend into himself, that he may so learn to humble and abase himself and confess his misery. Therefore, as a necessary remedy, both for our dullness and our contumacy, the Lord has given us His written law, which, by its sure attestations, removes the obscurity of the law of nature, and also, by shaking off our lethargy, makes a more lively and permanent impression on our minds. End quote. In commenting on, on Habakkuk 1:13, "Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor," John Owen says. Quote, The prophet here ascribes to God the greatest detestation and such an immoral hatred or immortal hatred of sin that he cannot look upon it, but with a wrathful aversion of his countenance abominates and dooms it to punishment. But perhaps God thus hates sin because he wills to do so, and by an act of his will entirely free, though the state of things might be changed without any injury to him or diminution of his essential glory. But the Holy Spirit gives us a reason very different from this, namely the purity of God's eyes. Fisher in Boston state For answer, hereunto, I pray you consider that the Ten Commandments, being the substance of the law of nature engraven in the heart of man in innocency, and the express idea or representation of God's own image, even a beam of his own holiness, They were to have been a rule of life both to Adam and his posterity. And then, being as it were raised out of the Ten Commands, being the substance of the law of nature, a representation of God's image in a beam of his holiness, behoved forever, unalterably, to be a rule of life to mankind in all possible states, conditions, and circumstances, Nothing but the utter destruction of human nature and its ceasing to be could divest them of that office, since God is unchanging in his image and holiness. One will not think strange to hear that the Ten Commands were, as as it were, raised out of man's heart by the fall. If one considers the spirituality and vast extent of them, and that they were, in their perfection, engraven on the heart of man in his creation and doth withal take notice of the ruin brought on man by the fall. Hereby he indeed lost the very knowledge of the law of nature. If the ten commands are to be reckoned as certainly they are, the substance and matter of that law, although he lost it not totally, but some remains thereof were left with him. Concerning these, the apostle speaks, Romans one nineteen twenty and two fourteen and fifteen. And our author teacheth expressly that the law is partly known by nature to wit in its corrupt state. End quote. Okay. Should I continue or nay? Let's see. I think I'll continue a little bit further. So next section is on capital punishment. This punishment is specified in Genesis 9 6 and Romans 13 4, among many other places in the Torah. Paul puts all doubts to rest that the new covenant has abrogated the authority of this penalty when he states in Acts twenty five eleven If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. God also shows in the direct execution of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5.1-6 that to put to death men for their faults is not repugnant to the spirit of the gospel. Those in the Eastern Orthodox Church complain that Yeshua did not come to judge and did not meddle in such legalistic temporal matters in his ministry. Anthony Burgess replies, quote, Christ in his first coming was not as a judge, and therefore did not take upon him to meddle in temporal punishments only as a minister, end quote. Yet in his second coming, he is a judge, or he was a judge. The same principles that the Eastern Church rejects about penal substitution also play a role in their view of capital punishment. The idea of vindicating justice has been removed from their conception of God, and so inevitably the vindicating justice behind capital punishment has been denied as well. Joining the company of the Eastern Church is the modern liberal movement that has rejected justice for rehabilitation and parole, such as John Dewey's instrumentalism. A primary objection to this punishment is that it does not deter crime. Well, it deters it for the one killed, Second, the law itself cannot deter crime, but enforcement of that law will. The problem is the law is rarely enforced, and it has been this way for decades in this country. However, God did make an exception for the murderer Cain, Genesis 4. Therefore, it is not a necessity to execute every murderer. The question is, is capital punishment ever the course to follow, or is it never to be considered? Usury. 2 Thessalonians 3.10. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. What is usury? Usury is the practice of taking interest on a loan or the gain of anything above the principle of a loan. Usury is not taking excessive interest. It is taking any interest at all. Gary North, a usury apologist, admits, quote, The word in no way implies, quote, excessive. It means any extra payment at all, end quote. This practice is so common today and so foundational to our modern banking system and our economy that many reading this tract will wonder why I'm even writing this. As I am writing this, our government is officially shut down due to the failure of our representatives to agree on a budget for the following fiscal year. In the past few years, our country faced the worst economic recession since the Great Depression. The city of Detroit, once known to be the capital of industry in our country, recently filed bankruptcy. Our country is in $17 trillion in debt. Over 40% of the wealth in this country is in the hands of only 1% of the population. Our country is on the verge of financial collapse, and it seems no one knows what to do. Modern philosophy has failed, so what does the Bible have to say about our problems? It may shock the reader to know that the Bible has much to say about our problems and even includes scenarios exactly like our own. The problem is, most of these scenarios are in the Tanakh, and Christianity has succeeded in convincing people that the the Tanakh, so far from being divine wisdom, is actually a curse. Christians hate the Torah. They reject the Shema, the Sabbath day, the kosher laws, the feast days, and the Torah. Or in the totality of the mosaic social order, the Messiah stated clearly that he did, he did not do away with the Torah, Matthew five seventeen through nineteen. So Christians have no excuse. It took me fourteen years of being a Christian to realize that is that it is impossible for Christianity to be the fulfillment of Judaism. Some apologists for usury complain that the Torah's prohibitions against usury only apply to the poor. The problem with this is that the the Torah commanded that all the people were to be governed the same whether they were rich or poor, native or alien. See numbers 15:15 15, 15 through 16 and Exodus 12:49. Secondly, Deuteronomy 23:19 through 20 forbids usury, but there is no mention of the poor. It is a general prohibition against usury. Jewish usury apologists claim that Jews may take usury from Gentiles pursuant to Deuteronomy 23:20. This was a huge part of the rise of modern banking from the time of the Renaissance. Girolamo Savonaroloa preached passionately against the financial and moral corruption under the Borgia Pope Alexander VI, giving specific emphasis on the common use of usury. In 1492, Jews were expelled from Spain, and some 9,000 Iberian Jews were welcomed into the Papal States in Rome by Borgia Pope Alexander VI. He did the same with expelled Jews from Portugal in 1497 and and from Providence in 1498. Under the Borgia Pope Alexander VI, the Jews made a fortune off of excessive usury. It was in the 14th and 15th centuries that the rise of the Morano Jews, or Jews forcibly converted to Christianity, were creating problems for the Catholics as this new demographic was producing a number of, quote, Judaizer her- heresies. However, the Jesuits, usurious financiers themselves in the 16th century, allied themselves with the Moranos, And let the reader not forget, the earlier... Borgia House connection because the co-founder of the Jesuit Order was Don Francis Borgia. Thus, the Borgia House Jesuit Jewish Zionist usury financed international banking cartel came into its own. Is it not strange that the charging bull on Wall Street looks exactly like the family crest of the House of Borgia and the crest of the Duke of Velantois, a title of nobility, first given to Caesar Borgia in 1498? Is it just a coincidence that the Salamancan Jesuits like Molina and Juan de Mariana laid the foundations for libertarianism and the Austrian School of Economics, which were huge defenders of usury? Karl Menger, the founder of the Austrian School, relied heavily on them. Yet we are supposed to believe that the libertarians are the suppressed heroes of our age. Maybe not. The Jewish argument is baseless. There are three types of strangers mentioned in the the Torah. One, Gentile converts to Judaism. They were to be treated just like Jews. Two, a Gentile who was visiting in Israel for secular purposes. He was to be treated just like a Jew. Here, a naturalized stranger is distinguished from a sojourning stranger. And three, the Canaanite nations who were subject to absolute destruction. The Hebrew word translated stranger in Deuteronomy twenty three twenty is different than the Hebrew word translated stranger in Exodus twelve forty eight through forty nine, Leviticus twenty four twenty two, Numbers fifteen, fifteen through sixteen, Leviticus twenty five, thirty five through thirty six, and Leviticus nineteen thirty three. This command to take usury from the Canaanite nations was an act of war, so that Yahweh, quote, by little and little will drive them out from before you, end quote. See Exodus 23 This is exactly what is happening to us. The banks are little by little destroying our nation, and the employees of banks are nothing less than the soldiers of an occupying military force. They are traitors, whether they know it or not. This sin of the Jews was the occasion of great animosity and outcry against them and further aided Western anti-Semitism. Usury was forbidden among Christians and Muslims alike. The erroneous Jewish exception enraged European Gentiles against Jews for centuries. And I disagree with Drake as well. I think that these Jews were false Jews. They weren't even true Jews. They were Cainites, um, descendants of Cain. The prophets (laughs) condemned usury. The most striking passage is in Nehemiah 5. Here we have the national poverty of God's people blamed on usury and the solution was immediate reparations. This lays out for us the primary evil of usury. It centralizes wealth into the hands of a few and produces widespread poverty. What is wrong with this? The people consented to it. What is wrong about it is that the sociological principle behind it is absolute self-interest. This is a contradiction to the social dynamic of the Torah. The Torah teaches the principle of collective tribal interest. See 1 Kings 21.3. Here we see the inherent evil of atheism and capitalism. Remember, modern-day capitalism was a production of Herbert Spencer's Darwinism, implying a strong emphasis on competition. Christian churches have blotted out the teachings of Messiah on this issue. Matthew 6.12 records Messiah's command to forgive debtors. The church I grew up in changed the word debt to trespass. In Matthew 25, usury is mentioned. The context of this chapter is judging, condemning, or awarding lazy or diligent service to one's master. Verse 27 mentions an unjust master demanding usury. This is no different than the Torah's teaching on this issue. Objections 1. If there is no usury, there will be no trade. Answer, international trade was conducted in mass during the reigns of David and Solomon, who both rode against usury. Not only so, but for centuries the Muslim nations have conducted trade under Sharia law, which also forbids usury. Maybe that is why our corporate-owned media wants us to hate those people so much. We learned much from the Muslims in the century preceding the Renaissance. Maybe it is time to learn something from them again. Two, you are just trying to demonize the rich. Answer, the Bible does not absolutely condemn rich people and actually appeals to wealth as a reward for righteous behavior. However, these verses are exceptional. The Bible demonizes the rich as a rule, not an exception. All right, I think I might cut it off here guys and continue pick it up next time. So, appreciate you listening and I will see you guys next time. All right, bye.
0: plus.